Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to your word written by you, spoken through the Son, and delivered unto prophets and apostles who delivered it to us. Father, it is your word and not ours. Therefore, it is incumbent upon us to be careful with this word, to, as you put it, rightly divide the word of God. Therefore, Father, give us mercies, give us grace, and by your spirit give us insight that we might see, we might hear, and that as a result we might be blessed as we keep this word in Christ's name. Amen. I am assuming that every one of you has, have been in a study on the book of Revelation. Am I correct about that? Yeah. Yep. Probably some of you, as Tommy has told me, have been in more than two. Three, four, five, six. Am I correct about that, Tommy? At least six. At least six. And here we are again, Tommy. So. The first six didn't take. <laughs> I saw the movie. To even approach this book, I realize that everybody has heard and everybody has been told how they're supposed to look at passages in this book. I handed you out a sheet that is nothing except an introduction to it. And this introduction basically does not even try to deal with all the problems that you get in the book. This introduction is a general introduction to the book as it sits here, as we have it in the text. So, let me begin before I go away from these notes, because this stuff bores me and probably will bore you. So let me begin by telling you, if I ask you, what is this book? In the sense of what kind of literature is this, what is this? prophecy. 
technically this is nothing except the same thing as the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, the book of Galatians. It's an epistle. It has an opening just like you'd find in Ephesus. It's John the Apostle writing to someone. And who's he going to write to? Yeah, not one church, but seven churches. And at the end, just like in an epistle, there's going to be a blessing section or a benediction that if you read this and you heed it, blessed are you. Now, that word blessed is the same as blessed are the poor in spirit. You're in a state of contentment, a state of happiness, because you are following what this book says. So, technically, this book is, in fact, an epistle. It's written in an apocalyptic form. Now, rather than me try to explain apocalypse, you can read it on here. I would urge you all this week to go out on the net and look up the book of Enoch, E-N-O-C-H. Now, it's 60-something chapters long, but some of those chapters are precisely one sentence. Yeah, it's one of those kind of books. But in it, this is the the apocalyptic book. They will even tell you names of, of angels and demons. Apocalyptic literature was floating around before John ever writes this book. Everybody knew this stuff. Everybody had read this stuff. If you couldn't read, somebody read it, and then they would tell you about it. That's why there was this messianic fever slightly before and at the time of Christ's coming. By about 100 B.C., you had all of these people showing up who were claiming to be Bar Kokhba, the son of the star. You know, the one where the Magi look at Mary and Joseph and say, or I'm sorry, look at Herod and say, we have seen his star in the east. So these men are claiming to be messianic. Uh, you have some others here. Frankly, Enoch's the only one that you need to read. And because there are those who will argue that there are places in the New Testament that are quoted from the book of Enoch. So that's why I'm telling you, go read the book of Enoch. It's actually a fairly fascinating read. Now, the content of apocalyptic literature, whether it's this book or Enoch or any of the rest of them, the first thing that you find is that you have an angel or some spiritual being that appears as your guide. They speak for the God and they speak to you and guide you through this. Does 
Does anybody know how the Iliad of Homer starts? Do we remember? Sing, O muse. The muse was the speaker, was the prophetic voice of the gods. So the muse is the one that is telling the story from the perspective not of the Greeks or the Trojans, but the perspective of the gods. Now notice, what perspective is the book of Revelation? It's God. It's not men. It's not John making this up. John doesn't say, and I was sleeping one night and came up with this thought of a new book. And then I started writing this down and I worked on it and I edited it. No. John says he heard and he saw and he wrote what he heard and saw. He is the voice. But when he doesn't understand something, who does he ask? Well, there's an angel there. He asks this angel, and the angel interprets it for him. In effect, that's his muse. Monsters, demons, yeah. All of that stuff is in here. Everybody look at the back of the page. There are two basic positions on when this book was written. And again, I don't like to do this. If this were a normal book, I would tell you, here's the date, and then we'd move on. Unfortunately, here, depending on who's telling you and what they're doing with the book, you actually have to know this. First of all, there's a late date. It is written during the reign of Domitian at about 96 AD, somewhere between 96 and 100. And John has been exiled during this second great persecution of the church, and therefore it's a late date, 96 AD. I'm sorry? Yes, he would be close to 100 by this time, yes. Now, if it's a late date, then... You can then get to whatever you want to make of the data that's in here because it's not tied to an historical event. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the opposite of it. If you believe in an early date, all right, If you believe in an early date, namely something around 68 AD, this is called the preterist view. The word preterist comes from a Latin word which means after. And what they do is they tie this entire book to a historical event that happens in 70 A.D. Anybody know 
what historical event they're talking about here? Yes. This is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD by Titus, the Roman general who will soon become after this the emperor of the Roman Empire. At this point, he's a Roman general. This is also that time when you heard about the infamous Masada event, where the last supposedly 900 Jews that are left that haven't fled the country and gone into the diaspora, the, the spreading out or the uh, um, dispersal, 900 Jews go down to Masada, they go up on this hill, and literally when the Romans finally break in, they've killed each other. They've all committed mass suicide rather than be captive to the Romans. So the Romans don't get the fun of slaughtering them on top of this thing. But if you believe this is an early date, then Everything in here is tied to this. If you don't believe it's an early date, then you're free to do pretty much anything you want after that with the details because you're going to try and find some explanation for the details. But if you're a preterist, this is Titus, the Romans, and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because they finally had it with rebellious Judaism. Now, I am not a preterist. All right, now if I tell you that, you understand, I've already set a tone for how we're going to approach the book. Uh, Preterism, you will notice there, uh, well, when we get to the second section. All right. Look at number three under the early date. The last sentence. Theologically, this view is used to prove that the Gentile church replaces physical Israel and becomes true Israel. In other words, this isn't merely about an interpretation. There is a theological reason behind this that if you're going to go this route, there's a reason you are holding to this one. You want to get away from anything having to do with physical Israel. So let me stop right there because I know some of you would be now distressed, right? Because somewhere in this book, somewhere in the Old Testament, they're going to find, if you are a futurist, a reference to the rebirth of of Israel. That's what they're going to find. And they're going to tell you that when that rebirth happens, prophecy begins to be fulfilled towards the end. 
All right, so when was the rebirth of Israel? 1948, correct. David Ben-Gurion and others got the allies, basically, after World War II to agree to let Israel have a homeland. And on what basis did they argue this? Well, they argued it on the basis of the Holocaust. Do you want that to happen to us again? Is that what you want? You want to be responsible for yet an... Well, how long does it take before you say yes to that and go back? Well, they were promised a homeland in the early 1920s, way before the Holocaust. Yes. And how did that work out? Yeah. And that's because, once again, you have nations wherein... I'll agree to anything as long as you get off my back. Agreeing to it and doing it, two different things. But the moment you have the Holocaust, now you've got the impetus to force men to do something. Simple enough. Pardon? Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. There was plenty of anti-Semitists who were for Israel because what are you going to do once they point out this atrocity in Germany, Poland, etc.? What explains the rise of Zionism in the late 1800s? What? I'm sorry? The rise of Zionism in the late 1800s. Zionism has been prevalent. Pogroms in Russia, pogroms in Germany, pogroms in Eastern Europe. Every one of the Jews realized if we stay in, and this is basically Fiddler on the Roof. I can be just dandy here until suddenly riding across the borders of my little village are the Russians under orders to decide to do something. Why? Because they're Jews. We're just going to do something to them. Luther had some of the most furious words about the Jews when he would write his commentaries. You look at Luther, you could make the case for anti-Semitism very, very easily. That's the way it was. All right, the interpretive views then at the bottom of this and then I want to quit this and I want to move on to something I think you'll find a little more uh, helpful in this. There are basically four views to this book. The preterist view, which I've just told you, it's the destruction of Jerusalem and everything talks about that. So notice then that the entire book has already happened. There's nothing future. It's all done. 
Number two, the historicist view. Revelation is a kind of survey of church history with historical events symbolically portrayed. Uh, people who follow this, you will notice down at the bottom, Wycliffe, Wesley, Luther, Calvin, Edwards, uh, with many other reformers. The Puritans held this view, basically. All right? They basically would look at this and say, I'm going to look at church history and find some place in church history that this suddenly speaks to. They will look at the seven churches and they will follow the history of the church through the seven churches. They will literally try and set it up that way. So one of them would be like the Enlightenment and one of them would be like the Reformation and one of, one of them would be the rise of the Catholic Church. And All right. Now, the, the problem with doing number two is that depending on where you are in history, you're going to interpret the churches differently because you are in a segment of history that the guy before you wasn't. Therefore, you can find something new to apply it to. The futurist view, most events from chapter 4 onwards have yet to be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled during a future great tribulation and millennial reign. This is the pre-mill dispensational interpretation. Now, I don't think I have to tell you all that this is David Jeremiah, this is Hal Lindsey, this is... Um, uh, what's his name? Tim LaHaye, uh, yeah, the guy on TV has the wife, T. Rexella. Jack Van, is that who it is? I didn't think it was Jack. Is that who it is? The lady with the sort of pinkish, I don't know, whatever. Her name is Rexella. How, how hard do you have to get before it's T. Rexella, please? <laughs> Please. I mean, it's like the first time I heard that. It's, really? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't listen to these guys. The spiritual or symbolic or the idealist view, most prophecies portray. Let's drop that. And let's do this. I want to show you something. If I write up here, Genesis 1 to 11, which is just what we've finished, right? And I go to the book of Revelation, and I take Revelation. Now, here's the trick to this. If this is 1 to 11, if I take 1 to 3, then go to 19 to 22, I can show you that that and that are almost exactly parallel to one another. Now, wouldn't that be sweet if I didn't have any more chapters in the book of Revelation? This, and particularly 20, 21, 22, when you end this book, it looks like Genesis chapter 1. That's where you're back to. 
That's the point of it. All right? The problem is you've got notice. And that's the problem. 19 to 22, 1 to 3, not a problem at all. If you'd just let me teach those and skip all those other ones, we'd all be great. But you will ask me to explain 4 through 18, and there's the problem. There's where nobody can agree. Because if I take this and those, that is perfect narrative interpretation. Perfect. God has set it up so that the one is the other. The ending looks like the beginning. So what do you do with 4 to 18? That's where the dilemma comes. All right? And it's why you have four different views, and they all try to prove that they're right and everybody else is wrong. Having said that, I want you to look at something. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So he makes man. Adam and Eve are made in the image of God, right? And he blesses them. And the, the blessing are five things. Be fruitful, multiply, fill, subdue, rule. Now I will show you that when we're done, the last thing that we're going to see is that that has come true. That's, what, that's why I'm telling you that is the meta-narrative of the Bible right there. And by meta-narrative, before I lose people here because... People have left this class because I use that word. By meta-narrative, I merely mean that there is one story that every other story comes off of. It all touchstones to those three verses. Everything touchstones to those three verses. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is what I want you to see. When you, then you come to Genesis 12... 15, 17, and 22, which are the covenant of Abraham. And, of course, which is the forerunner to the new covenant, because the new covenant is nothing except this restated. All right? This is what I want you to see. God blesses Abraham, and he says, in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Right? Now, in the New Testament, Paul says that that phrase, all families of the earth will be blessed, is the gospel. 
He calls it that. He uses the word gospel. That is the good news. And why is that the gospel? Because he's going to do for all the families of the earth what he did for the one in his image. And if he does that, that means that those who are of this new family must also be in his image. Now, Paul also tells you that every one of these promises to Abraham, this blessing of all the families of the earth that ultimately kings come forth from, all are given to one human being. Who is that human being? So, Jesus comes that this might be fulfilled, right? Now, this is what I want you to see. When he comes, what is it like? Take it to precisely what we see in the Gospels. Do men welcome this one? What does Herod do? Yeah. And in trying to kill him, Herod is willing to slaughter an entire village of babies. Two years and under. Kill them all. How much demon activity is there here? A lot. How much demon activity do you hear in Ephesians, Colossians, the book of Hebrews? You never hear hardly any. But here, it's all over the place. Why? Because think about it. In order to get to this, literally, all hell breaks loose. Does it not? Men are willing to do anything to get this guy, including... He's a blasphemer, including we have no king but Caesar. If you don't crucify him, if you don't put this one to death, you're not a friend of Caesar, obviously like we are. All right, now. What I want you to see here then is this is the first coming, right? And yet, this is what pro procures 
this. It is why suddenly you and I are in the gospel. You do realize this, right? Because uh, is there anybody in here who actually is of Jewish descendancy? Anybody? You have Jewish background? Okay. Anybody else? For those of us with the exception of Veronique, for just a moment, were you the people of God? No. no. You, according to Hosea, were low ami, not people. I will call those who were not people my people. You will go from low ami, not people, to Ami, my people. How does that happen? And the answer is um, yes, the promise of Abraham in Christ. I don't understand adoption the way you understand adoption. No, I'm, I'm just telling you, we would need to talk about that in private. I think we misunderstand what adoption is. Um, Yes, in Christ Jesus, we become his people. The blessings of Abraham now are started to be fulfilled that all the families of the earth are blessed. Gentiles are grafted into the root because Israel is cut off. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. We don't have to go to, well, are they coming back or not, and all of that. Just let that go for a moment. What I then want to show you is, he does all of this, and instead of answering the question, what's the question? Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel. Does he answer it? No. It's not for you to know times and seasons, right? And right after he says that, what happens? He ascends. He's gone. Lo, I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house, if it were not so, I would not tell you, but I go away that I might come send the spirit. And I will return and get you so that where I am, all right, now here's the point. He does this, all hell breaks loose, he still becomes out victorious, but what does not happen is this kingdom on earth or this kingdom of heaven, or however, whoever's up here telling the story is telling it. It's left without an ending.
So what is that? That's the ending. That's why you have this book. Because in here, this is what we're going to go, next week we're going to do one verse. I, I'm telling you, you will not believe how complicated one one gets. And the arguments that go on over what does one one say. Believe it or not. So here, what he does is, once again, this is about a return or an appearance. Well, wait. Was that not an appearance? So when this return or appearance happens, what happens in the book? All hell breaks loose again. Why are we shocked? The same thing that happened then happens now because Christ is about to come back. Only in this case, it's not judgment on the Christ that is, the judgment that the world will bring on him. Rather, it's the judgment on the world who will not listen to him. All right. Does everybody follow this? That's why you have this book. It's why this book sits where it is and why it's written in the way that it's written because... In both cases, that first coming, when everything goes crazy, baby slaughter. Who warned you, you brood of vipers, to flee from the wrath to come? There's a way to start a sermon. They show up and... John calls, John the Baptist calls them the sons of the devil. I'm sure that started things off well. From there on, even while he does good, Israel is constantly on him trying to find something against him. He will say to them, just show me where I have done something wrong. You've seen me. I haven't hidden. You've watched me. You've heard me. Tell me what I've done wrong. And when it all ends, all of these men who at one time heard him, followed him, are now all screaming the same thing. Crucify him. Even after just a few days earlier, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, crucify this guy. 
So, no surprise when we are about to get this return and ultimately the fulfillment of that, Genesis 1, of this, the Abrahamic covenant, now the new covenant, and this return, his appearance again the second time to end it all, we shouldn't be surprised that that's what we get. Because now God is giving what men deserve. Now I will stop and say the last thing here. Regardless of what position you take, everybody is in agreement on one thing. This tribulation or great tribulation, even if you take it in the most literal way, it is God's judgment upon the unbelievers, but it is also the unbelievers' last shot at persecution of the believers. And trust me, they go full out because what they did to the Christ, they now do to the believers. That's what everybody agrees on in the book, regardless of the position you take. So, this is why this book stands at the end. It's this second coming to finally finalize everything that was promised from those three verses in Genesis chapter 1. Questions? Thomas? Can you, uh, if there's anything between covenant theology and replacement theology, they, they don't, they're not necessarily synonymous, are they? I mean, if you, if you take the idea that covenant is a relationship between God and, and his called out people in all ages, which includes both Gentiles and Jews, and the men and the present, that's not necessarily saying that uh, there was a change in shift of the paradise at the time of Jesus. The answer to that is, it's not necessarily a, if you're this, then you have to be that. No, because a lot of that depends on how you interpret Romans chapter 11, and then all Israel shall be saved. It's not necessarily completely one corresponding to the other, no. But most of them are. Yes, if, if you want it that way, yes. The vast majority of them probably are replacement theology. Yes, and if you didn't understand what we were just talking about, that's okay. Honest, it is. Any other questions? Otherwise, we will pick this up next week with one verse. Revelation 1.1. 1, 1. You have to at least have some grasp of what is going on here so that then the rest of the book sort of flows off of it. All right. What I wanted you to do, though, today is once again see that the book is consistent with narrative interpretation. This isn't a book that stands by itself because it has monsters in it. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer.
Father, it is through your Son that you have brought about what you commanded Adam, what you promised Abraham, and what you promised in the new covenant. I will. And that, Father, is our hope, that you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And it is our glory because you have bound yourself to do what you promised. You will not go back on your word. And you do it in Christ Jesus that all glory might be given to him that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Christ is Lord ultimately to your glory, Father. And thus it comes to an end that once again you have glorified your name. Let us be of those, Father, that are bowing the knee even today that are mortifying sin today, that find in you and only in you our hope for that future, our hope for that glory, and for that city whose architect and builder is God. In Christ's name, amen.